this morning we're going to be talking about becoming an unoffended church. Now, what does that mean to, to not be offended, unoffended? Uh, well, there, there are things that we should be offended by, and then there are things that we should not be offended by. And we'll be talking about the difference a little bit this morning. Uh, there's one verse in particular in the passage that we're going to be in that gives us a, a huge clue. It actually just, you know, tells us what we shouldn't do. Uh, but we'll get there in just a moment. But uh, in your bulletins, there's actually a mistake that is my fault here. Uh, when a mistake that is my fault, that's, that's not a rare occurrence. But anyway, um, when Kimberly asked for the scripture for this morning, um, I, I told her, Acts, when we're going to be in Luke, and I knew we were going to be in Luke, but I guess because Luke wrote Acts, I'm just thinking Luke and Acts, and it just told her Acts 7. Um, th- so there's this verse in your bulletin. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. That has nothing to do with our sermon this morning. Um, but if you're in here and you're 40 years old, and you have an urge to visit your brothers, if they live in Israel, then I encourage you to do that. Um, this is actually, this verse is from a sermon that Stephen preached that got him killed. So I hope that this isn't (laughs) some sort of foreshadowing of what we're going to be going through this morning. Uh, I hope that, uh, my fate is different. Um, if you, if you have the urge to, to stone me after this sermon, then please talk to me first and said, at least give me an opportunity to talk my way out of it. Okay. Uh, but I will say that this morning's sermon, it does step on toes. And it stepped on mine all week preparing it. Uh, this is a thought I had several years back, and it convicted me strongly. It really is one of those thoughts that helped change the way I did a lot of things. And this morning, uh, I've, I've not preached a sermon on it. Um, this morning, uh, I'm going to be preaching a sermon on this because of where we've been and where we are as far as our... Um, journey together to look at what scripture says about the church and we've been going through this series uh, becoming a biblical church and i told you maybe i should have named it a more biblical church because i believe that we do a pretty good job of uh, being like the bible tells us to be but we've been looking at how to become a more biblical church a, a, a more effective church a, a, a one another church as we talked about last week which we looked at all the verses in the bible that talked about love one another, serve one another, you know, commit to one another. We looked at all those one another verses, and, and we've been looking at the fact that if we want to be a biblical church, there are things that we have to do. First of all, we have to live life together. The very first sermon of this series, we looked at Acts chapter 2, and we saw how they were meeting together in homes, that they were committed to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, to... Um, some, one more thing that I've forgotten off the top of my head. Uh, we, we looked at how God designed the church to be together. And we've talked about how the church is not a building, although we say we're going to church. And that's, you know, that's just something, a saying that we know what we mean by that. Um, but if we want to talk about the church, we need to talk about being the church. Because biblically, the church is the group of believers, the body of believers that have joined together locally um, to live out God's word together, to be Christians together. That's the church. And then uh, even a broader understanding and um, this 
the scripture talks about this a lot too, is the overall church, all believers from all nations, from all tribes, from all tongues. Right now, we have local churches here on earth because, you know, we have to because of geography and other things. Um, But one day, there will only be one church. When we're in heaven, we will all be there united in the same place and worshiping together. And so, if we want to know how to be a better church, a more biblical church, if we want to know how to be the church that God has called us to be, then we need to go to Scripture. And when we go to Scripture, we see He's called us to do it together. Right? He's called us to do it in a one another way. Love one another, serve one another, those one another's. Um, he's called us to do it in a way where the leaders are equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Where it's not just the job of the pastor or the youth pastor or the deacons or whoever, whatever your, who your Sunday school teacher or whoever the, your leader is. It's not just the job of the leaders to do all the work. It's the job of the leaders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's our job to equip all of us to do the work together and to be the church together. We all have a role to play. We all have a job to play. And so in continuing with this, we, we talked about a few weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 4, we talked about what a mature church looks like. And it actually reflects a person, and that person is Jesus. So if we want to be a healthy church, if we want to be a biblical church, then we need to be like Jesus. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what it means to be like Jesus. And in order for us to know what it means to be like Jesus, I think sometimes it helps to have a contrast. If, if okay, if this is good, then we understand good. But when we, when we see bad, it helps us to understand why good is so good, right? I hope that made any sense. Um, and so today what I want us to do is not just to look at Jesus, which we will do, but I also want us to look at the people that Jesus criticized the most while he was here on earth. Anybody know who that was? It was the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time. And so we're going to look at the Pharisees to see why Jesus was criticizing them, to see exactly what they were doing wrong, and to see how opposite of Jesus they were. And if we're not careful, in our pursuit to be holy, in our pursuit to do good, we can become more like Pharisees than we are like Jesus, which is a dangerous place to be. And so I told you a few years ago was my first time to think about this sermon, which I've just now prepared. Well, the reason I was thinking about it is because I was reading the Bible, and I was reading about the Pharisees, and I thought, sometimes... Maybe I should say oftentimes, my actions reflect more of the Pharisees' actions than they do Jesus' actions. Sometimes I look more like a Pharisee than I do Jesus. And so, again, a Pharisee, for those of you who who aren't familiar with what a Pharisee is, a Pharisee, back in Jesus' day, they were um, Jewish like Jesus was Jewish, and they were the religious leaders and the lawgivers of the Jewish people. Now, Rome was was in control when Jesus was on earth. So they answered to Rome, um, but when it came to matters of the church, they were the religious leaders and the lawgivers, Um, which doesn't sound like a bad job, right? A religious leader and a lawgiver. But how many of you know that uh, religious leaders can be corrupt? 
How many of you know that lawgivers or politicians can be corrupt? Only three of y'all. Hmm. The politicians here must be a lot better than with the ones where I moved from. Um, okay, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, not Acts chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And so if you want to turn there, uh, I encourage you to do so if you have your copy of God's Word. We're going to start in verse 18. So Luke chapter 7, verse 18. And I want to give you a little um, context of where we're starting here. This is why Jesus is here on earth. This is going to be about a time when Jesus is having a conversation with a group of people around him. Um, Jesus has recently given the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter 7, we see where he heals a couple of people, a centurion's son and and a widow's son. And um, we we see some, some amazing things happening. And then in John, chapter, sorry, Luke chapter seven, we're going to read about John the Baptist. I don't know, I don't know what's going on here, but Luke chapter seven, uh, verse eighteen. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John reported all these things, meaning the healings that have been taking place, the Sermon on the Mount, those type of things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord. Lord being Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, who is John the Baptist in relation to Jesus? It's his cousin. Now, John is, is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Now, I know he's in the New Testament, and possibly you can make the argument that Jesus is the last of the Old Testament prophets, but Jesus is much more than a prophet, and he belongs to both covenants. And so, John is the last of, like, when we read about prophets in the Old Testament, like Moses or Isaiah or whoever, then John is a prophet in, in their line. And he has been out in the, the wilderness. He's been um, he's lived an ascetic lifestyle where he's withdrawn from people. He's withdrawn from everyone to, to make this point that this new way of life is coming, that something new is coming. He, he came to prepare the way for Jesus. And so he's been setting the stage for Jesus. And, and so even though Jesus is his cousin, John and many Jewish people of the time, and, and people who were non-Jewish probably didn't have enough understanding of what God had been doing in the Old Testament, um, Old Testament for us, not necessarily for those people of that time. Uh, they didn't have an understanding to even be aware of what was going on with the Messiah and with a Messiah coming or our need for a Messiah. But uh, John came to prepare the way, the scripture tells us, prepare the way for Jesus, for the Messiah, for the Savior. And so John is out in the desert and he is baptizing people. And this is not a New Testament baptism. This is an Old Testament baptism. This is just symbolic of washing away of sins. That, 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 hey, let's, let's start fresh, okay? Let's, let's follow, um, this teaching that I'm saying that a new Messiah is coming. That's what that was. And so, um, and then Jesus even made it symbolic in a different way. And of course, in the New Testament, um, it symbolizes that we have died to our old selves if we've been saved. We've died to our old selves and we've raised to be like Jesus. We've raised to walk in the, in the newness of life. And so John sends his, um, his disciples to Jesus. And he has them to ask this question. Are you the Messiah? 
Are you the one that we've been expecting, or is there another one to come? Now, the crazy part about this is, is that Jesus and John know each other. Now, I don't know how close they were as adults, but we know that they were close enough to where when Jesus came to be baptized by John, John says, this is him, the one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. I'm not, I'm not worthy to be in his presence. He should be baptizing me. And so we know that they have some sort of relationship, but because even John's expectations of who Jesus should be and the things he should do were not in line with the reality, even John, even Jesus' cousin, was out of step. Because you see, the Jewish people of the time were expecting this um, conquering king to come and deliver them from the thumb of Rome and, and to build up the kingdom again. And so they were expecting these things. And so even John, when Jesus didn't come as a conquering king initially, now Jesus will be a conquering king, we, we know, one day, but he came first as a suffering servant. He came first to, to suffer and to die for the sins of man, to honor God in that way. But John didn't understand what was going on. Why is he delaying? Why is he waiting? Why hasn't this happened yet? And so he sends his disciples to tell him. Now, listen, uh, John was not alone in this. Jesus' own parents, when he was 12 years old and they couldn't find him and Jesus was in the temple, if you remember that story, um, Jesus' own parents in Luke chapter 2 didn't know what he was going to be doing and what was going on. He had to tell them, didn't you know where I would be? Shouldn't, shouldn't you have known? His brothers in John chapter 7 are trying to tell him how he needs to do things if he really is the Messiah. <clears throat> and even his own brothers didn't understand his purpose. The Jewish people didn't understand. His own people didn't understand his purpose. And the Pharisees for sure didn't understand who Jesus was, what he was trying to accomplish. They were eventually the ones who got him killed who got him crucified, the Pharisees were, the religious leaders of the time. And so, John wasn't alone. Even his family, closer family than John, um, didn't know what to be looking for. And so, let's start back up at verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, so he, he's done all these miracles, and he had already done some that before this that we talked about. And so even in that hour, he had done these things. In verse 22, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The unoffended. So when I say I want us to be an unoffended church, I'm not talking about other things except let's just not be offended by our master, by our savior, by Jesus. And there were, there were plenty of people who were offended by him, but blessed are the ones who were not offended by him. And so what does he tell John's disciples? He says, go back and tell John that all these things are happening. Why is he telling them to tell him that? Instead of saying, yep, I'm the guy, right? Why is he telling them 
the, the blind can see, the deaf can hear, the dead are being raised. Why is he telling them these things? It's because Scripture tells us that the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, these sort of things would be happening. And so he's answering him in a way that he knows John, who knows the Scripture, would understand. He's telling him, These are the people, or these are the things that I'm doing, and then blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, if I were to ask you to raise your hand if Jesus offends you, there probably wouldn't be too many of us in the room who would raise our hands, right? Um, But, let me ask it this way. How many of you have ever read the Scriptures, and the Scripture has cut you to your heart, and has offended you in a way where you knew there were changes that needed to be made in your life? You knew that, that you weren't living your life the way that you should. That you weren't honoring God the way that you should. How many of you have ever felt that? And so my prayer is, is that this morning as we're looking at this scripture. As we're talking about the difference contrasting the Pharisee and Jesus. My hope is that we wouldn't be offended of Jesus like the Pharisees. My hope is, is that we would be unoffended. My hope is, is that we will embrace everything that Jesus says. But even in embracing Jesus and all he is, there will be a level of offense. But we won't be offended in a way that turns us away from Jesus. We will be offended in a way that leads us to repentance that draws us closer to Jesus. And so that's my hope and my prayer this morning as we look at this scripture. Look at verse 24 with me. When John's messengers had gone... Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? So both of those, the answer to both of those are no. They're not just going to look for this, you know, famous person out in the desert or a man in fancy clothes because, or John wasn't wearing fancy clothes for sure. He was wearing uh, clothes that made him look like a crazy person. Um, But... They weren't going out just to see that. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxuries are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who's, who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, let's break this down just quickly and talk about what this is saying. First of all, Jesus is giving John accolades. He's saying, this is a great man. This is a man who understands what God wants and what God is, desires. And even this great man, by the way, had to ask Jesus, are, are you him? Are you sure you're him or should we be looking for someone else? And But let's go back to where we are in the scripture. Um, Jesus is is giving these accolades, and he's talking about how great John is, and he's telling them that there's there's none born who is greater. And yet, in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit comes and fills his people, when God dwells in us, even the least has greater power at his fingertips, has the ability to serve God even greater than the best without that than the best prophet in their time or in the Old Testament. It's unclear exactly what he's saying here. But 
what we know is, is that for those of us who have a relationship with Jesus, who have been saved, who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, then we have um, this incredible relationship and this incredible power at our fingertips. Now, whether we utilize it or not, that's a different story. But let, let me continue. Verse 29. This is a little commentary from Luke. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So all those people that were gathered to hear Jesus speak that day, who were sinners, um, declared God just. They, they agreed with Jesus' statement about John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So they were disagreeing with what Jesus said. They didn't even agree with what John said, much less what Jesus was saying. And what does it say that they have done for themselves? They have rejected the purpose of God for themselves. These were God's people. These were the leaders of God's people. These were the people who were supposed to be leading out in when the Messiah came and letting people know that this was the Messiah. And the opposite was happening. And so now here is the unflattering comparison that we have to make between the Pharisees of old and the New Testament church of present. Because we have to ask ourselves, who do we look more like? Jesus or the Pharisees? And in many cases, we, we, all, have a part to, uh, uh, we all have a part of blame in this. We all have to, 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 to be honest and to say what we've done wrong. We, as the New Testament church, have done actions that have caused us to reflect, in some cases, the Pharisees' character more than the character of God himself. And we're going to look at some of these things. And what I'm talking about, I'm going to spell it out. But we need to, to ask ourselves this morning, is there anything in us, in the way we act, in the way we feel inwardly, is there anything going on that makes us look more like a Pharisee than like Jesus? And if the answer is yes, then the next answer is repentance. We have to repent for the sins that we have committed. We have to repent for the wrong that we have done. And so, with that said, um, let's look back at the scripture at verse 31. To what shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? So why am I making this comparison? Because Jesus himself in this passage makes some unflattering comparisons. So what is this generation like? Verse 32. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Now this is in quotations, so I don't know if this was some sort of children's song that they actually sang or some game they played, um, or if this is just uh, Jesus making up something off the top of his head to compare them to. But let's look at the comparison. Who are the, the, the current generation that Jesus was with? Who are they like? And he's probably talking more about the religious leaders um, because th- this reflects a lot more of what he says about the religious leaders than what he says in general at most times. But it could just be about the generation in general. 
but they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. So they're like kids playing. Now, this isn't like let the little children come to me and you need to be like a child and, and freely come to Jesus. This is Jesus um, throwing some shade on people, to put it in modern terms. Uh, this is not a good comparison. He is calling them childish is what he is doing. Okay? So they are like little children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. John, remember, John withdrew from society. John was out in the wilderness. John didn't dress nicely. In fact, he, he did dress like a crazy person. He didn't eat steak. He ate locusts and honey. He, he, he led a life that reflected someone who was penitent, who wanted God to do something great and was humbling himself to the most extreme possible. And what did they say to John? We played the flute for you and you did not dance. They said, what are you doing? You're too crazy over there. Acting like that, living life like that. Come over here and be like us. But then Jesus came and Jesus was eating and drinking with sinners. And Jesus was, his, where was his first miracle? Yeah, at a wedding. And what was his first miracle? Turning water into wine. Okay? So they're like, Jesus, you are being too extreme. You're too far over here. We sang a dirge. It's, you know, something done at a funeral. We're trying to be more somber. And you didn't weep. So they wanted John not to be like God had called him to be, but to be like them. And they wanted Jesus not to be like God had called him to be, but to be like them. And they were upset by it. They were offended by it. And there are too many times in the modern day church where we, where people don't meet the status quo. They don't meet the expectations of come, sit, listen to a sermon, and then go be a good person. That's kind of the way that a lot of modern day churches are structured. You come once a week, maybe twice. Super special people come three times. And you listen to a sermon or whatever the case might be, and you hear good things, and then you go be a good person, and that's the extent of Christianity. And John surely didn't come to do that. And I know that this was an Old Testament um, structure, the coming to the temple and hearing things, but it's something that came over into the New Testament where I'm not saying sermons are bad, sermons are good. That's something we should take part in. We should hear sermons. We should hear our teachers and our religious leaders Teachers and religious leaders are not bad in of themselves. They're bad when they stop concerning themselves with what God desires and they start concerning themselves with what they desire. When religious leaders and when people in general, by the way, make things about them rather than about God, then it becomes ugly and it becomes repulsive and it becomes something that always sours, that always causes division, that always causes people, whether inside or outside the church, not to want to be a part of that church. That's what corrupt leadership always leads to eventually. And we see it over and over and over again. And I'm not just talking about going back to Scripture. I'm talking about still today, currently, we see where religious leaders, they get power hungry or they get corrupt or whatever the case might be. And it leads to all sorts of pain, all sorts of hurt, which they should be held accountable for. But in sometimes, in some cases, the churches themselves cover up for the ministers. Because they're embarrassed or whatever the case might be. And that's not okay. If I sin, I need to be held accountable. Let me rephrase that. When I sin, I need to be held accountable. Because I will sin. 
And you shouldn't expect me to be perfect. You shouldn't expect your leaders to be perfect. You should expect your sinners, your, your leaders to be sinners who need Jesus. And expect them to be sinners who repent and strive to be holy but will fail. And when they fail, they need to turn to Christ and ask for forgiveness. They need to turn to the people that they hurt if by their sin they hurt anyone. They need to turn to those people and ask for forgiveness. And they need to continue. And that's not just what leaders need to do. That's what all Christians, that's what we all need to do. And the Pharisees did the opposite. They made up their own rules, and they didn't live by their rules, by the way. No one could have kept the the Old Testament law, much less the laws that they added to the law that the Pharisees added, since they were lawgivers. And they didn't keep their very laws that they expected others to keep. But see, they weren't really worried about keeping the law in their hearts. They just were worried about appearances. They wanted to make sure that everybody understood what wasn't even true. That they were special. In a way that put them above everybody else. That they kept the law. They did what they were supposed to. Not John the Baptist and not Jesus, but they did. Now the reality and the truth is, is that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Isn't that what Romans tells us? We're all sinners. There's only one who has not sinned. And that was Jesus. And so a lot of times the Pharisees would tell Jesus how he needed to be doing things differently. And we look at that today and we look at that and we say, that is just wrong. How could they do that? And then we turn around and we do the same thing as a church. We turn around and we say, I know this is how Jesus did things, but, you know, we live in a different time and surely that doesn't um, still apply to us today. So let's do things differently. We look at people who have friends who are drunkards or friends who are addicts or friends who are other. You can just name the sin that you find socially unacceptable or unacceptable in general. We look at people who have friends like that and we tell them, you don't need to be hanging out with those people. Those people are bad influences on you. When our Savior came and hung out with those people, he came and he loved those people. And we have become a people who says, clean yourself up and you can come be a part of our country club. When in reality, we should say, we're all sinners. Come broken to the cross. Come to our Savior. I need Him. You need Him. None of us can be made perfect except through Him. We are all sinners. And should those people clean up their lives? Absolutely they should. That's what's best for them. That's what's best for their families. That's what's best for society. That's what's more honoring to God. Of course they should clean up their lives. But how can they clean up their lives without Christ? And we as the church are saying, clean up first and then come here. Well, you know what the Bible says about cleaning up without Christ? You can't do it. And so we have to be ready as Christians to humble ourselves and stop being pharisaical, stop being like the Pharisees and start being like Jesus, start being like Christ. How many friends do we have that people would look down on us for having? For most of us in this room, not many, because we care more about what people think than when we do about people going to hell. And we have to be careful. We have to be like Jesus. And not like Pharisees. And so I'm willing to do whatever it takes that honors God. I'm not willing to sin in order to get people to come to church. I'm not willing to sin in order to get people to hang out with me. But I'm willing to put myself in whatever situation necessary. I'm willing to go wherever I need to go. 
wherever God desires me to go, in order to chase after some for Christ. In order to love people like Jesus loved them. And it's not just a game where we see, okay, what's the furthest I can go without sinning? And uh, how many people can I lead to Jesus? And, and we, we get marks. It's not about making it like that either. It's about being like Jesus. It's about loving people no matter who they are. And as you love, God's the one who takes care of salvation. We don't save people. We never have and we never will. We can't. Only Jesus can save them. It's our job to love them. When, when Jesus summarized the commandment into one, one A and one B, what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love God without loving your neighbor. And the Pharisees did not love their neighbors. That's why I'm bringing this up. The Pharisees only cared about appearing to do right all the time. They only cared about the rules. And how many New Testament churches today, how many churches can, can, can be accused of doing the very same thing? Only care about people following the rules and not caring about their spiritual state. I need to continue. This sermon is going to become two sermons. I'm not going to finish today. So, he compares them to a generation of childish people who John didn't play by their rules, Jesus didn't play by their rules. And look at verse 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And so... They also, by the way, later accused Jesus of having demons. Um, but that's what Pharisees do. Is they want to make other people look bad to justify who they are and what they're doing. So we have to be careful about that. I, I wrote down some things I'm going to read to you. Um, some characteristics of Pharisees. They, some of these we've already covered, but they were religious leaders and lawmakers. They were gatekeepers of religious practices, meaning that you had to do things their way uh, in the Jewish religion or, or you weren't um, godly. They valued law and rules over people. Even Jesus, by the way, when he was picking grain on the Sabbath, they got on to him. And I mean, it's comical in retrospect to think that they were getting on to Jesus, that they were getting on to God, but they did. Um, they thought they knew better than Jesus. Uh, I'm afraid that I've been guilty of that at times. They were lovers of money. They were more worried. That's Luke 16, 14, by the way. I can give you the scripture references on all these if you want them. They were more worried about outward appearances than an inward holiness. They were hypocrites. And these are things Jesus said about them, by the way. They rejected God's purpose, as we saw earlier in this passage. And they wanted power so much they were willing to have Jesus killed in order to keep it. So we have to ask ourselves, are we power hungry? Do we care more about our church being how we want it and keeping our church a certain way than we do about lost people or about, more importantly, God and his desires? And again, that doesn't mean we just start changing things to change them. 
But churches change. People change. We have to change. In order to continue to obey Scripture, Scripture stays the same, but we have to change. And when different problems present themselves in, in our world, then we have to change. Let me give you an example. Um, we live in a democracy. Paul did not. And so in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Paul, who was persecuted by the government, by the way, said, submit to the governing authorities. And submission in Paul's day, not living in a democracy, looks different than submission in a democracy. We have the ability to protest, right? And that's not, but we can still submit because we live in a democracy. We have the right to protest while still submitting to what the law says. We have a a right to do that. Okay, so things changed, by the way, while I'm talking about that. Uh, won't you protest things that are godly? If you're going to protest, protest things that stand on Scripture. Don't protest things that go against the very fiber of Scripture and what God has called us to be. Remember, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, not hate your neighbor. And so protest in that way. Whatever side of it you're on, let's just do what the Bible says, okay? And going back to where I was, we just have to, and I actually need to start wrapping this up. Um, again, this isn't where I was planning to end, but we're just going to, won't like baloney, just chop it off right there, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be wrapping it up next week. Um, but those are the characteristics of the Pharisees. And I don't have time to go through these. We'll go through them next week. But what are some modern-day characteristics that match those? Well, if if you desire to gossip about people and to talk about their flaws and to amplify those so that people can hear them and see them, um, you might be a Pharisee because you have flaws. And in the Bible, you, you know what the people who were forgiven did? as we'll read next week, they didn't hide their flaws. They were honest about their flaws. They said, this is my sin. God, forgive me. But Pharisees said, what did the Pharisees say in, in, in the one parable? Uh, God, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner. That's a Pharisee. So we have to be careful as the modern day church not to be the very people that God warned us about. We are his, Right? We call ourselves Christians, little Christs. We call ourselves that. First of all, it was originated as an insult. Other non-Christians called us Christians because, oh, look at them. They're like little Jesuses. But now, can the world even call us that? Are we like Jesus? This is a question we have to ask ourselves. And God forgive us if we're not. God help us. Give us a burden and a passion. You you know the thing that scares me the most about this sermon? Scared, by the way, is the appropriate term. My stomach was hurting this morning in anticipation for preaching this sermon. Because the very people who need to hear this the most are the very people who are most likely to reject a message like this. Because who rejected Christ's message? The Pharisees. Who didn't just reject it? Plenty of people rejected it. But who didn't just reject it?
But it offended them so much that they were willing to kill Jesus. The Pharisees. And so we have to be careful. Let's be justified by wisdom. Let's be her children, as that last verse that we looked at told us to do. Let's do right by God. Let's repent and let's be more like Jesus. If you see Jesus doing something, then be like that. Do that. Now, of course, you're not Jesus, so take precautions. If you have a temptation to gamble and throw away all your money, to lose all your money, um, and to not be able to provide for your family, then I highly recommend that your ministry not be in a casino, okay? Or if... I'm just going to leave it there. You can use your imagination. But just make sure that you are not putting yourself in a place where you're going to be tempted to fall into sin if that's your temptation. But some of you, I want to say more, but I don't have time. So here's what I'm going to do. I know you'll all be back next week. For Rose's family, that's only a you know, four-hour drive, so I'll see you then. Um, but I just want us to be real with Jesus. We can put on a front and, and pretend and wear this mask and say that we're perfect and that we're without sin. And we can do that. And we might be able to fool the people around us. You're probably not. They're, they just won't say anything to you about it. But you might be able to fool the people around you. But you know who you're not going to fool? Is God. You might even be fooling yourselves. I know I have at times. But this morning, we need to go to God. And we need to ask him to see, like David did, is there anything wicked in me? Is there anything that needs to change? Is my heart in the wrong place? What do I need to do in order to be more for you? In order to be more like you've called me to be? Let's not be like the people who rejected God's purpose for themselves. Let's be like those who knew they were sinners and knew they needed Jesus. And when they got him, they just wanted to tell others about him. We'll pick up there next week.